Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And uh, blessed Ash, Ash Wednesday to everyone who has their ashes this morning or this evening. And uh, had my first uh, pre-sanctified liturgy tonight, uh, right before this group. So if I'm a little foggy-headed, you'll know why. Uh, it was pretty rigorous, but beautiful. And uh, we're picking up this evening on page 127, we're on step number 10. We've just started with paragraph number four, and we've moved into this section now where he's going to be speaking about sins that are tied to speech. So slander, calumny, uh, talkativeness, and uh, lack of silence, and then finally lying uh, we'll be looking at uh, before he moves on to some others. And so these next steps are pretty tightly tied together. Uh, but beauti again, beautifully written, and as always, he defines things with a, a great clarity and precision. So paragraph four on page 127. I've heard people slandering, and I have rebuked them. And these doers of evil replied in self-defense that they were doing so out of love and care for the person whom they were slandering. I said to them, stop that kind of love. Otherwise, you will be condemning as a liar. Him who said, him that privily talked against his neighbor, did I drive away? If you say you love, then pray secretly and do not mock the man. For this is the kind of love that is acceptable to the Lord. But I will not hide this from you. And of course, be careful lest you judge the offender. Judas was in the company of Christ's disciples, and the thief was in the company of murderers. Yet it is a wondrous thing how a single instant, in a single instant, they exchanged places. Ooh, a brutal uh, final sentence of the, of the paragraph, and very challenging. That uh, I think what he says here is clearly uh, a way that we often approach something such as slander or detraction or calumny, uh, where we convince ourselves that we are speaking out of love, that we are saying something that needs to be said, that we are defending the truth, or that we are trying to correct someone, and always telling ourselves that it is out of charity and for in the best interest of the other. And yet very often, this is a kind of rationalization on our part. Uh, John tells us very clearly that the, the best thing that we could do is pray secretly for them. And uh, I think we could go even further than that and say, take penance on their behalf if it is something weighty. But uh, as we will hear John say that even if we see something with our own eyes, or if we hear something, we cannot, we still cannot be quick to judge uh, because we do not see all things and we certainly do not see the movements of the mind and the heart of another. And so even if we see them acting in what seems to us to be a deliberately sinful way or speaking an untruth, we really don't know what the source of that is for them. And so even if we find ourselves disturbed by something, we have to show great care in this regard. Uh, realizing, I think, uh, and this is what he brings us to at the end of the paragraph, that in an instant, things can change radically. 
that uh, the one who perhaps in our judgment or our estimation is a sinner or fallen in sin can turn back to God very much like the thief on the cross and find himself in the, the presence of God. Or uh, we could find ourselves very much like Judas uh, being one of the disciples. And yet because of our lax, uh, laxity and watchfulness, uh, in regards to how we speak of others, but how we look at them, the judgments that we make, we can find our, ourselves being judged very harshly for us, uh, harshly for this. And, uh, you know, I remember in beginning the study of uh, psychoanalysis, reading a work that talk, is by a fairly famous analyst here in Pittsburgh, uh, McLaughlin is his last name. And, uh, he writes in his work uh, that we, we have blind spots and hard spots uh, that we do not see and often uh, can, cannot do anything about that prevents us from seeing the full truth. And analyst in particular, he says, has to be, have to be aware of this in terms of suspending judgment, that no matter how clear or how long you've been working with someone, uh, no matter how clear, clear it becomes, you are not to say anything until they have come to that perception of truth on their own. They're on the verge of embracing and acknowledging it themselves or already have done so. Because otherwise you, you risk uh, driving them back into a kind of defensive posture uh, and uh, preventing them from seeing something that is very important for their healing. And so you never want to take a sledgehammer, in other words, to people's defense mechanisms and uh, because you could wound them more. And similarly, I think for, for Christians, uh, there can be this kind of spiritual abuse that takes place uh, by those who are in positions of spiritual direction, clergy, or by Christians in general, where th things are said uh, often under the umbrella of giving counsel or solid counsel in accord with the mind of the church, but not really knowing anything about the individual they are working with. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this spoken about and how deep the wounds run uh, because of it. And so beginning uh, with, restrain ourselves in regards to our speech uh, is really an important starting place for us uh, in terms of growing in charity towards others. I see one hand up, Bridget. Let's see, Father, sorry, a little long. I just wanted to follow up from last week with a comment or question. I was not able to type this fast enough. It was in relation to what you were saying about being serious and stern and presenting the faith. You mentioned about your early sermon and how it was perceived by the college kids. I used to be pretty sanguine. Life was taken, has taken its toll. I once heard Bishop Sheen say something that was pretty profound. He stated Christ had many emotions that were written about in the Bible, but never did he smile or laugh. Bishop Sheen stated that he is saving those for us in heaven. Looking at step 10.2, many people nowadays are pretty shameless and very happy. And it is hard for me to find smiles and joy around being around, surrounded by the deluge. 
and tiptoeing around the obvious moral problems these days? How does one escape mental slander, which sometimes manifests as verbal slander? And how does one show a non-judgmental face? Well, it has to be something genuine. I think our own minds and hearts have to be formed and shaped by the grace of God. There has to be a kind of purity of heart that allows us to see others, even in their woundedness, as if we were seeing them with the eyes of Christ, that we would look upon others with compassion and empathy. Uh, and I think it's only when we have this purity of heart, then do we not make that movement to, to slander or harsh judgment, or even if, as it were, having to put on a face, put on a mask as if we are pretending. The purer our heart becomes, the more Christ-like we become, the, the more uh, uh, truthfully that we can engage others and engage them in charity. I think the problem with our vision of others is that it often lacks humility and charity, uh, an understanding of the truth about ourselves and our own woundedness. And as we've often talked about the solidarity that we experience with others in their sin, uh, but also recognizing them as those for whom Christ died. And so looking upon them with the same compassion and desire for salvation as we would have for ourselves. And I think when that is present in our hearts, then we're, we are able to engage, uh, but without the rancor that I, I think so often uh, colors our exchanges with, with one another and uh, the ways that we, we look at others. And only this will alter our, our speech. And, uh, and so if John is saying this you know, to those who are living in a monastery and who are living in silence and have made this conscious choice to, to live the common life with the pursuit of this particular end, uh, I think you know, what, what he would be saying would be just as true, maybe even more true for us. And maybe this, in our day and age, this is where our sanctity is formed and shaped. Uh, there's one modern day saint who said, you know, those who maintain a purity of heart in our generation are greater than or as great as the martyrs of old uh, when the church was persecuted. So to maintain this purity of heart, when we are surrounded by that which is often the antithesis to the gospel and uh, often which is very dark and distorted requires a kind of purity of heart that not only leaves us unscathed by it, but gives us a, a heart capable of looking upon others with love and charity. And part of it, I think, is trusting in the power of God's grace uh, active in other people's lives and active in and through us, through our prayer and our sacrifices, to go to those places where we cannot go through our words or our actions. That God can bring about a change in the heart of even one like the thief that is crucified next to him. Uh, then if he can do this, then certainly he can reach in, into the hearts uh, of those around us. Any other comments or follow-up?
Okay. Number five, he who wants to overcome the spirit of slander should not ascribe the blame to the person who falls, but to the demon who suggests it. For no one really wants to sin against God, even though we all sin without being forced to do so. So it's a shocking thing to hear a desert father say, and I think often they are presented to us as being these harsh characters. But here John is telling us that when we, we look at another person, we should not blame them uh, for their sin, uh, but recognize that they are under spiritual attack as we are. And, uh, and so are often drawn into sin, whereas if they would see with clarity, and if they were capable of seeing the, the depth of God's love and their mercy, they would be, not be drawn. They would not be drawn there. And, uh, you know, we rarely see, I think, the, the history of the people around us and the, the things that they've gone through the things that have formed and shaped their minds and their hearts, the trauma they've endured, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, or the image of God that has so often been presented to them that is at times far from loving and merciful. And uh, if we look for the reason for the rejection of Christianity, again, we, we don't really have to look too much further than ourselves. Uh, to see where it begins, uh, often with our, within our own infidelity, our own incapacity to embrace the path of love that Christ has called us to tread. And, and this is where I think the daily examine is something very important for us because it shows us uh, how to begin to see and to pick up those subtle movements of the mind and heart where we are swift to condemn others or to, to look at them with suspicion or to assume the worst motivation in their actions or in their speech. And so John tells us, you know, don't, don't you blame them? You know, if you have anger directed towards the demons, and again, redirect what you are experiencing towards prayer and spiritual sacrifice on their behalf. Support and strengthen them in the spiritual battle rather than condemning them. Number six, I've known a man who sinned openly and repented secretly. I condemned him as a profligate, but he was chased before God having propitiated him by a genuine conversion. So John here in sort of a rare uh, revelation, self-revelation tells us that, you know, he once judged somebody, you know, in the harshest way as uh, a sinner who was deeply rooted in his sin, only to find out that this individual had a, a chaste heart before God that had, he had undergone a conversion of which John was unaware. And, uh, you know, often we hear from the saints that uh, there's a great work called the Cloud of Unknowing. 
I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's written by, they think he was one of the English mystics. Uh, they don't know the, the name of the author, man or woman. Uh, but he says it only takes an instant, an atom of a moment, he says, to turn the mind and the heart to God. And so in any, of any individual that we engage, you know, we don't know if there was a, a remorse, e even in the act itself, that turned their minds and their heart back to God. And if it only takes an atom of a moment for that to take place, then how can we be swift to judge? That's how quickly we can find ourselves on the wrong side of, uh, of, of, an, of a reality or this issue, just like what he said in the above paragraph, uh, you know, where the, the thief exchanges place with Judas. It could take place that swiftly. Do not regard the feelings of a person who speaks to you about his neighbor disparagingly, but rather say to him, stop, brother, I fall into graver sins every day, so how can I criticize him? In this way, you will achieve two things. You will heal yourself and your neighbor with one plaster. This is one of the shortest ways to forgiveness of sins. I mean, not to judge. Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. So valuable counsel you know, to, uh, to judge oneself, to acknowledge the, the fact that one in one's own heart has often done worse things than what is being criticized or what is being condemned. And so to pull the focus off of the other. And we are so perhaps hyperly aware of our own self-image and self-esteem uh, that the idea of humbling ourselves before another person like this seems like it could be too costly. Whereas John is telling us it's the shortest path to heaven that to, to take upon ourselves the blame that is often directed to others is to cleanse ourselves, is to heal us, as well as to heal the one who's speaking disparagingly against another. So we act in true charity towards the one who's condemning someone, you know, offering a healing word, as well as healing ourselves. Such a powerful little aphorism. Fire and water are incompatible. And so is judging others in one who wants to repent. If you see someone falling into sin at the very moment of his death, even then do not judge him because the divine judgment is hidden from men. Some have fallen openly into great sins, but they have done greater good deeds in secret. So their critics were tricked, getting smoke instead of the sun. So fire and water are incompatible. And being a person who seeks, repent, seeks in repentance the mercy of God, we should find it incompatible with our judging another, even if we see them commit something at the moment of their death. The image here is an interesting one. A kind of smoke screen is put up by the evil one. 
we are tricked into uh, condemning a, a person. We see smoke, but there's really no fire there. That what uh, seemed like fire was quenched by the conversion of the other or by their good deeds. And we are fooled then by this into committing a grave sin into the judgment of others and the, and the breakdown of charity. Isn't it surprising? I think to, uh, because John's teaching is so clear and so direct about the passions that uh, it could make us think that there's a lack of charity there. And it's just the opposite. His clarity comes from his charity and his purity of heart. And so the sharpness of his teaching is matched only by the depth of his love and mercy. Any comments, questions? Does all of this resonate? Okay. Number nine, listen to me. Listen, all you malicious reckoners of other men's accounts. If it is true, as it really is true, that with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, then whatever sins we blame our neighbor for, whether bodily or spiritual, we shall fall into them ourselves. That is certain. Uh, that little proverb, uh, pride rideth before the fall. Uh, when we judge others, and condemn them, then we, we can be pretty sure that we're going to fall into something that is either the same or equally or more humiliating. And, uh, and so to fall into this kind of pride often leads us then to uh, a lack of vigilance in regards to our own thoughts, and then sometimes falling into a sin that we feel that we have overcome or that we've moved past in some way, only to find ourselves drawn down to the depths. And uh, being allowed to see this consequence, I think, is pretty important, not as a way of punishment, but of waking us up to what our, our judgment really does. And the only way for us to let go of that pride is to let us see our own poverty as it really is, how much God sustains us from moment to moment, if we know virtue, or if we know a kind of freedom that others seem to lack, it's only because of the grace of God. And so we can't for a moment allow ourselves to be, as he says here, malicious reckoners, you know, that especially when there is a malice, a kind of delight in the fall of another and the delight in the capacity to judge them harshly that brings upon us an even more severe kind of judgment. And, you know, we live in, in an age where there is this kind, there's kind of malice and darkness in it. And we've talked about this when we talked about dark spite, uh, that there, there can be you know, this really sharp point uh, that we give to our words uh, when we engage people about any number of things, theology, liturgy, what's going on with the church, what the Pope said this day or that day, or, you know, what kind of fast somebody has 
keeping or whether it looks like they're keeping a fast, whatever it might be. Number 10, hasty and severe judges of the sins of their neighbor fall into this passion because they have not yet attained to a thorough and constant remembrance and concern for their own sins. For if anyone could see his own vices accurately without the veil of self-love, he would worry about no one else in this life, considering that he would not have time enough for mourning for himself, even though he were to live a hundred years, even though he were to see a whole river of Jordan of tears streaming from his eyes. I have observed much mourning, such mourning, and I did not find in it even a trace of calumny or criticism. And so, you know, it's almost like we've come back to Bridget's initial question that John has gradually laid, laid it out. You know, what is our response to be uh, when we see others engaged in this kind of calumny or detraction, or when we see it arise within ourselves? What is the path that we are to walk? And John, uh, you know, paints the, the image for us here so clearly, constant remembering concern for, for our own sins, and that if we did see them, we would never cease to shed tears. And where, where there are tears of remorse, then uh, John says, I've never seen anybody commit this sin when those are, are genuine. Number 11, the demons, murderers as they are, push us into sin. Or if they fail to do this, they get us to pass judgment on those who are sinning so that they may defile us with the stain which we ourselves are condemning in another. So the murderers, he describes them as, that you know, they, they bring about uh, a death within us and they push us. They're not, again, inactive observers, that they are relentlessly trying to draw us in or push us in to sin and judgment is a very easy one, you know, because our, our vision can be clouded so, so easily. This is one of the marks by which we can recognize spiteful and slanderous people. They are piteously plunged in the spirit of hatred and with pleasure and without a qualm, they slander the teaching or affairs or achievements of their neighbor. So the truly spiteful, and perhaps we see ourselves in this all too clearly, uh, there can be a, a, so plunged in a, a feeling and a spirit of hatred uh, that without qualm, we can take pleasure in tearing down others. And the more that we feel justified in doing so, the, the, the greater the pleasure can be, and it can draw us ever deeper. And so the teachings, the affairs, the achievements of others can become the source of mockery and slander, that we can diminish even the good things about others. 
And so calumny, again, you know, to have a kind of clarity is to say something that is not true. Uh, so sl slander is typically something that is spoken or written. Calumny and, and calumny is not true, whereas detraction is true. And yet we are speaking against another person. But in any case, I think what John is telling us is to avoid them all, uh, that we're, we're not justified in, in embracing them for any reason. Any comments so far? Any qualms or about what John says here? Okay, let's see. Number 13, I've seen some committing the gravest sins in secret and without exposure. And in their supposed purity, they've harshly invaded against persons who have had a petty fall in public. And so, wow, John doesn't miss a step here. They're, you know, in our own sinfulness uh to protect our own self-image to protect our own ego we will then direct our attention towards uh, a petty or small sin of another even though in secret we are committing grave sins and so you know the defense mechanisms that we've often talked about are very active within the spiritual life. On a psychological level, we, we can know very clearly our conscience can be rebuking us uh, in a very strong way. And the only way to silence it is then to redirect that insensitive faculty, that insensitive power towards another and to be merciless in doing so. Because then our, our minds are captivated uh, with that, with the other and what they're doing, no matter how small it is, and it takes the attention off of ourselves. And I don't think any of us are, uh, are beyond this. It doesn't take many steps to get where John is talking about. If we sort of allow ourselves leeway uh, in some measure in regards to how we are thinking or talking about another. To judge others is a shameless arrogation of the divine prerogative. To condemn is to ruin, is the ruin of one's soul. So in some ways, it is placing ourselves back into the sin of Adam and Eve that, you know, eating of the fruit of the tree and you will know good and evil for yourself and then you will be like gods. And so John is saying, you know, we, we are taking what belongs to God alone, his prerogative to judge which is good and evil and want, want to take it for ourselves and use it for ourselves. And in this way, we ruin our soul. It's like a second fall, and it, when we fall into it, it should be as bitter as the experience of Adam and Eve. And I think what it, they experience is uh, an inability 
to control their own passions. And this is what often happens to us as well, as John has already said, that once we've gone down that path and we take from God what belongs to him or seek to, when we embrace that illusion, we find ourselves suddenly unable even to control our own passions, our own desires and appetites. One more coming in. Even without any other passion, self-esteem can ruin a man. And in the same way, if we have formed the habit of judging, we can be utterly ruined by this alone. For indeed, the Pharisee was condemned for this very thing. So self-esteem can ruin a man. That when we are self-focused and we are only seeking our own good, and to elevate ourselves, it can really ruin our character and it can ruin our relationship with others. In modern parlance, we would be narcissists, you know, that we would be focused upon our, ourselves and, uh, and our own self-image. And so it ruins us. But uh, he's saying here, you know, when it takes this step on a spiritual level, when we get into the habit of judgment, and so where it has, becomes a passion, it becomes habitual for us, then it ruins the soul, that we are deeply rooted and mired in it. And because it's so tied to pride, uh, it's not something that's easily uprooted or even easy for us to see. Uh, Rebecca Therese, wrote, part of Leviticus 19 came into mind in relation to not judging at all. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate in your heart anyone of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor. You, or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Right. And, you know, we find the Lord uh, pairing when he's asked what is the greatest commandment, pairing this love of God and neighbor together. And uh, what we see in Christ, though, is the perfecting of this word that is revealed even as early as in Leviticus. We see what shape that is to take in our life, that there in this one who is perfectly innocent, who's perfectly holy, a willingness to take upon himself the burden of the other and a willingness to carry that burden all the way to the point of death on their behalf on our behalf and so he stretches the teaching here from the old testament to its breaking point uh where we are shown the nature of the love to which we are called to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect to be merciful as our heavenly father is merciful that there's only one thing that we are allowed to do as christian men and women in regards to other people, and that is to love them. 
somehow, even after 2000 years, we seem a hard, to have a hard time embracing that. A good grape picker who eats the ripe grapes will not start gathering unripe ones. A charitable and sensible mind takes careful note of whatever virtues it, seems, it sees in anyone, but a fool looks for faults and defects. And of such it is said, they have searched after iniquity and in searching, they are grown weary of searching. So, you know, the, the person who truly loves is always going to seek to interpret through the lens of that love, uh, to interpret the actions of others in a spirit of generosity. Whereas a person who is the fool is always going to interpret with the greatest suspicion and in fact be looking for faults, looking for weaknesses uh, through which we can condemn another. And the, the last line is curious, the quote from the Psalm there, uh, in searching they are, grow, they are grown weary of searching uh, because if you're only looking for faults, you're going to see faults everywhere. Uh, it's sort of like the person with the log in their own eye. It so fills the field of vision that that's all they see, logs everywhere and, uh, and in every person. And, uh, and so John is basically saying the same thing. You know, we're, we are going to grow weary in this task because it will be never ending for us. Do not condemn even if you see with your eyes, for they are often deceived. The 10th ascent, he who has mastered it is one who practices love or mourning. So one who has either been perfected in charity or one who sees with the greatest clarity the poverty of his own sin and so mourns and is incapable of directing judgment towards anyone. Such a powerful step. Again, this is what should be read in seminary. Because uh, I, I, I just can't imagine anything being more helpful in terms of our own spiritual life uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And then certainly in the counsel that would be given to others. And... Uh, because within the church, you know, I, I think there is this tendency that we have to, to move to the intellectual and away from praxis, from away from the practice that we find taught in the gospel. And in that, when we make it notional and we pull it into our mind, we, we shrink the gospel down or we alter it in a way that is more acceptable for us. And we look for ways, as we often do as, as individuals, for loopholes or that allow us to get around from these teachings about not judging and, uh, and about not being angry. And everybody points to Christ's anger in the temple, you know, and flipping over the tables. And, you know, because we want to find some way to be able to justify uh, the feelings and the words and the actions that often flow from us with great ease. 
rather than try, trying to, to look at things with the clarity with which they are presented, not only by John, but most importantly in, in the gospel and what we see manifest on the cross. At one point, he'll talk about that within the text about meditating upon the cross, that it drives out our capacity then uh, to, to speak uh, against others or to lie about them, that it brings a kind of shame to us when we see the depth of that love so clearly, only then to have it reflect back at us our own lack of love and generosity. Any comments or questions about this step before we move on? Piercing and penetrating as always. Father, what year was that written? Uh, what year was that written roughly again? Uh, if you could remind me. Oh, like the 700s or six or 700s, seventh century, John. So Thank you. early, yeah. And he's certainly not the first to say it. I mean, he's, he puts it in such a form uh, because requested to by a neighboring abbot. Uh, but we find this in the Philoclea, you know, all the, the very same things articulated uh, there. And those are really from the beginning of the monastic life. So fourth century on, 300s on. And then certainly in the writings of, you know, the early fathers of the church as well. Uh, there's a couple here, Anthony and then Ambrose. Anthony, since the late Middle Ages, our culture has been both immoral and curious. We want to, the knowledge of St. Thomas, Thomas's summas, but we have not as eagerly gone to the other side of him, the one that made the Pange Lingua. We want knowledge for curiosity's sake, but not humility of devotion, right? And that's certainly not Thomas's fault. I think it's our own sin that has led us there. You know, Thomas uh, knew the importance, I think, and was part of what gave him the clarity that he did have uh, about the, the faith, and even to acknowledge that in, in comparison to uh, communion with he who is truth, what could be articulated uh, would, is much less, is of much less value. And that's true, you know, I think what we perceive and what we hear in a moment of silence can fill the mind and the heart with a wisdom, allow us to comprehend something about the love and the humility of Christ that we could spend our life meditating upon and, and not come to, to grasp. Ambrose writes, do you think the nature of social media has made this particular trap of the devil more prevalent. Yeah, because it's provided us, it's not like it's anything new, but it's provided us yet another vehicle and one in which we can do it in uh, a kind of anonymous way or where we can place this ourselves at a safe distance from others. And it removes a kind of internal filter, I think that, often guides us in our face-to-face -face interactions with others. And so we will often be brutally blunt with others 
And it really has, I think, diminished our capacity to listen because we, the nature of those interactions are very incomplete. And because of their bluntness, it creates, it sort of snowballs, it creates an aggression that speeds up the exchange. And so people stop listening to each other and they begin to formulate in their own minds what they want to say next in order to trump what the other person has put in the comment. And I think this has then spilled over into our interpersonal relations. It's, it's affected the way that we interact with each other on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, either we choose not to engage people at all because we don't want to be bothered with that, and it does require patience and generosity and the capacity to listen, and so we isolate us, ourselves and we won't pick up the phone. We'll let everything go to message or our you know message machines, or we'll you know choose to text and all of these things because uh, who really wants to talk to anyone? It requires too much energy. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, it's actually funny, you know, one of the reasons that Freud did the whole thing behind the person on the couch was that if you meet with people throughout the course of the day, hour after hour, emotionally, it becomes very exhausting to be engaging them, especially on that depth it's, and where you're going into, you know, this deepest emotional arena. And so part of it, not the full reason, but part of it is that it was too exhausting to do that. And uh, he had to, it forces a person, which he in this clinical work didn't want to have to deal with. It forces a person to be aware of what they are expressing because they know that the other person is going to pick up their, their nonverbal signals, how they're sitting, their reaction to a dream or something that a person just comes to a person's mind. And so in order to free himself from that and simply be, to be able to listen to what the other person is saying, he chose to sit behind them. And so for less virtuous reasons, I think we choose to hide behind the screen often, even when it's like this. I mean, we can see each other, but we can also be looking at our phones and doing a whole host of other things when other people are, are talking. And uh, we call it multitasking, but we're really not giving the fullness of, a, of attention to, to others. And it's a frightening thing, you know, and when, because even priests, you know, can get so, so absorbed in like the use of technology that going into a place like the confessional can seem to be an obstacle to this connection to the world around them. And so instead of being perfectly, seeking to be perfectly present to God in that moment, in, in the sacrament and present to the individual who comes in, to participate in the, in the sacrament, that either in between the confessions or in the midst of the confessions, be very much aware of what's flashing up on their watch or flashing up on their phone, or God forbid, actually uh, engaging uh, others or other tasks. 
And so getting back to Ambrose's thought that I think the devil uses this very well. And it, you know, we are directing our attention to an inanimate object or, you know, certainly not sentient yet. Uh, <laughs> and we are ignoring others around, around us. And in so many subtle ways, I, I think this makes us unable to have a radical openness to others because we also become very conscious of time, of all the things that need to be done or that we have to attend to. And so it prevents us from being able to see someone who happens to be sitting and looking depressed or weeping or someone in need. We can pass them right by. In fact, it's a frightening thing, even in terms of people's safety. I can, you have to be a really defensive driver now because people walk across the street looking at their phones and they don't, they don't it's almost like you get the sense they don't care. Run me over, if you will, uh, then I'll sue you kind of thing. But uh, it's, I, I think it really has altered us in more ways than a than we imagine. And I think we fool ourselves in telling us ourselves that it is this great way of communicating uh, or that it draws us together. It can be used in some really powerful and good ways, but I think in the indiscriminate way that we use it, it can be, it could lead to, it leads to self-absorption. And in that self-absorption, we lose our capacity to see the other. Especially when we don't know them well. You know, it's interesting to compare a group like this group or the Monday night group where we've been making this journey and many of us for years together through these writings and sharing our thoughts about them and compare that to a Zoom meeting uh, like a chaplain's meeting or, or a business meeting where perhaps you, you know nothing about others or what they do on a day-to-day -day basis and how different that can be. There can be no intimacy there and no interest there whatsoever in the other's life. Let's get through this meeting, get done so I can get back to what's really important in my life. And so to make it work, I think we have to really be self-aware, uh, aware of its power, but also of its limitations so that we don't allow that to happen. And we have to work then to engage others outside of this arena. Sister Barbara Jean writes, how great it would be always to be centered on nothing, on, on noting the virtues, on nothing, uh, no, nothing but the virtues that observes in others. That's right. You know how freeing that would be. You know, in terms, I don't. I don't think we're often aware of the energy that is expended in negativity. Uh, that it's not life giving. It steals something from us, and so to direct that towards others. We find that it can be kind, not kind of, but truly toxic. You know, it can weigh the spirit down. And if 
and if we think about looking at others with love and charity and always looking for the good and the virtuous, there's something there that's going to elevate us and probably them as well in our encounters. Uh, Bridget writes, as a nurse, I can attest it is physically and mentally debilitating communicating. Many of my coworkers talk about how they can't even talk after a shift. Verbal interaction is very challenging. It is, but uh, I think in days past, you know, it's sort of interesting. Silence and intimacy go together. And I think in different time periods, people had greater opportunity for silence. You know, think about before there were cars and television, let alone computers. And the way that people would work often involved greater silence in, uh, in, on a day-to-day -day basis. And if they were working in the fields or even working in the mills, you know, that uh, there wasn't this constant chatter in the background or a constant chatter throughout the course of the day. Because if think about it, if people are agitated constantly by watching the news or listening to the news or following their feeds on Twitter or Facebook, they're going to be constantly communicating that to others. So it's going to filter into our daily conversation. And so we're going to find each other to be exhausting to be around. And But if we're in this state of silence and intimacy with God, then when we do come together and engage each other, we, we have that energy to, to be fully attentive to each other and to engage each other. And it was interesting growing up, you know, I've mentioned this before about these, you know, blue collar workers down in Manesson, you know, and uh, I spent a lot of my youth in the French club uh, with these guys and, you know, they would be playing euchre and having a beer and playing this kind of Belgian bowling. Uh, I think it was called Guy. Uh, it's too hard to explain. I won't go into it. But those were some of the most enjoyable memories from my childhood because there was so much laughter. They knew each other so well. They had these great names for each other. Izzy, Baba. You know, and all you know, all these kind of things, nuncio, and and so colorful and engaging. And you know, it's not like they were perfect individuals or didn't have their troubles, but it seemed like people did a lot more for each other and were engaged in each other's life far more uh, in in all these little ways. And now it seems like we live in these isolated worlds where we engage every once in a while when we have to, or when we're pressed to in our work. So even in marriage, like silence and intimacy are really important, that couples need this that silence where they can engage God in order then to re-engage each other with the kind of freedom and generosity of spirit. And so not silence and just getting the heck away from one's spouse, but, uh, you know, something that is truly restorative. Ambrose writes, number 12 and number 15, I recently learned uh, 
of a few very vocal critics, including a former apologist in the church, ending up leaving the faith either entirely or moving to a sect, it's very sad. There is something in what St. John is saying there for sure that this kind of behavior can be ruinous. Absolutely. I, I think when it's turned into a profession and when individuals are put and placed up on a pedestal for doing so because they have this capacity to speak eloquently about it and to you know, articulate the truth so clearly and point out, out others' mistakes so clearly that it ends up is exactly what you said as being ruinous for them. And some of the things that John describes earlier in this text are exactly what happens to them, falling back into old things that plague them and from which they were healed or through uh, disobedience, perhaps being removed from the very life where they had enormous impact upon others. And so there is something in, in this kind of activity that blinds us to the presence of God and blinds us to the goodness of others. And if you have a never ending source that feeds that for you, if you have this gathering of tens of thousands of individuals telling everybody what a great speaker you are and praising you for doing exactly what John is saying here, because it is protecting some truth that, that you feel is so ever important and need, feel that needs to be protected, then it's, it's like that person is almost doomed to that path because it's seductive. You know, often those who are drawn into celebrity, not simply religious individuals, but drawn into celebrity in general, find their life, you know, in their life crashing and burning because a distorted view of reality begins to emerge. It becomes hard to function in the world and engage others as normal human beings. And so I always worry, and uh, I remember a couple of people here writing, uh, Ren, not too long on uh, Facebook, a little bit about that, you know, the celebrity priest or celebrity religious, where these kind of things, it's, you always worry about their well-being and that we should pray, pray for them because it's a dangerous position to be in when, you know, all of a sudden you have millions of followers. So good question. And I think in our day and age, within the life of the church, we have to be aware of that and protect individuals and be praying for individuals. You know, Fulton Sheen, you know, people often will bring him up, but, you know, he made a daily holy hour and I'm sure he struggled with his own demons and had to do battle, you know, in the midst of that because he was loved across the board not just by Catholics. I mean, this guy, uh, you know, he had greater ratings than, who was it, Merton Burrell or whoever was popular on television at that same time. You know, he beat him out in the ratings. And so it must have taken this heroic effort to stay focused upon Christ. You know, here at the beginning of the age of television, 
not to have that you know go to his head but to keep his focus on what it was that he was preaching about and what it was he was teaching so that brings us to 8 30 but also the uh, end of the, that step and so we'll pick up with step number 11 next week okay very good comments and questions everybody thank you so much and have a great week and won't we close there as always with the our father in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. Now, may God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in mm -hmm. peace.